Kia ora koutou katoa. Welcome to The Hoon, where co-host Peter Bale and I go around the week's news in geopolitics and Aotearoa's political economy with a whole bunch of experts, academics and politicians, all to understand our worlds better and have some fun. Tēnā koutou katoa. It's lovely to see you, Peter, in Los Angeles. Now, Bernard, I'm so ashamed, but I have to make an apology to you and to Simon and to our audience for missing last week. I, I, I had set up a position in Times Square, which <laughs> truly is the most hideous place in the whole of New York, I must admit. And I had all my mics and everything laid out, and I slept through my alarm to get up at one o'clock. So I do apologise. I woke <laughs> up at two and just could have thought, "Oh no, bugger this," right. and rolled over. So, but I am here. It's LA's a little bit easier. It's ten o'clock. Oh, good. Um, and I've just been out to to dinner with you know glamorous people in LA. You know, talking about. I mean, one of the problems about if 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 you're in LA more than about two hours or maybe a couple of days, possibly a week, you start to lose all perspective and you say, well, it's just like Dustin said in Rain Man. <laughs> they, you, know, you lose all of your references to Shakespeare or anything like that and uh, it all becomes about what Dustin said in Rain Man or what, as Arnold said, you know, I'll be back. But I'll be back in New Zealand next week. Very good. Yeah. Loving to hear that. Yep. So um, I do apologise for last week. You know, I've done it from what, uh, Perugia, Spain, did I do yeah. one from Oslo? Yes, I did one from Oslo. Yeah. Jesus Christ. I know. No, it's been amazing. Yeah. And, the, and you had foxes and the whole thing. Yeah. Um, no, no, we're very, very lucky to get you. Well, I was thinking, so I was having dinner tonight down by Venice Beach, um, not Serenissima, not, not, not the real Venice, but the, you know, the Los Angeles, Santa Monica Venice. And I was thinking of doing it from uh, the Muscle Beach. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, but I thought... <laughs> Possibly, you know, I could lose my computer and my phone and be, you know, anyway. So here I am at my friend's house in uh, Venice Beach. So I'm not doing it literally from the beach, but I'm near the beach. Fantastic. Now, it's been a, a heck of a week uh, here as well. We're gearing up for the election. But tell us about, um, you know, what you've been uh, hearing around the traps, New York, Los Angeles, what's happening in, in America? What is everyone talking about? Oh, well, as you, as you know, Bernard, it only takes me about 30 minutes to be in any country to realise, you know, the deep insight of what's going on. I, I think more or less nobody has noticed the um, US debt crisis, uh, mm. which has just been averted as we're, as we're speaking. I mean, it is, this is no way to run, you know, the world's, last super, world's most important superpower. And actually, I've been thinking a lot, as you do when you come to the States, about the sort of remnant thing about it being a superpower. And there's, there's no doubt, of course, that it is you know, a place that's just so tremendously capable of mm. constant renewal and economic generation and uh, momentum. But it's also got completely stuffed infrastructure in many yeah. respects, and this kind of political fiasco that's going on at the moment, you know, that's just been going on where everything has to go to the brink. Yeah. it's. Um, I mean, when you go to America, you always feel the hustle culture. It's like mm. you can smell it as you go out of the mm -hmm. plane. The whole, you know, the energy, the everyone's got an idea or everyone's going to be rich. Oh, Christ. I've heard it. I've run, I've, I've raised so much Series A capital in the last <laughs> two days and, you know, done my pitches and, uh, yeah, 
No, no. Um, it's 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 a weird place, and you're right. If only they could harness all that and have some decent underlying stuff. Yeah, which they can. You know, they constantly can. But just the this this. Uh, I was with somebody who knows Trump very well when I was up over in New York, and this is somebody who talks to Trump or Trump's people almost every day. And there would appear to be no doubt that he will, in fact, be the uh, Republican candidate in 2024. You know, and I think the idea of that, when I think of, I mean, we talked a few weeks ago about the piece that uh, my friend Geraldine Brooks wrote for the Sydney Morning Herald about how dangerous it was for Australia to get into AUKUS and mm. into that whole submarine deal when it was still possible that Trump would get in. And I think that's a really, you know, it brings some of these things back to, right back to New Zealand. You know, we've got to be really, really treading carefully right now. Yeah, no, we're lucky today. We've, we're going to be talking to Robert Patman uh, soon and also Sam Shashtiva, a uh, former colleague of mine oh, from, from Newsroom. Sam is the author of a book that's just been published called The China Tightrope mm. and has had to think and report uh, uh, very deeply on this issue of, you know, which way do we... You mean as opposed to our once over lightly on the podcast once a week? Uh, well, you know, we've we've got the cumulative, you know, layer the layer the layers on if, until you get something nice and hard and thick. Um, so, uh, you know, Sam's has done a lot of work on this, and uh, his book has been a, a quite high profile here, and it's it's great. I'm looking forward to having a chat, to Sam. Mm. And just a, an update on the political news from from here, Peter. Mm. Um, where this week uh, the National Party, as we sort of talked about last week. They confirmed that they've dumped the um, compulsory three-story, three townhouses on a section yeah. thing, ended the bipartisan um, hope. And I interviewed Chris Bishop this week, and the interview is out on the spinoff today, in which he said he wanted a big New Zealand. Uh, he wouldn't say exactly how big he wanted it, but he wanted councils to plan for that big New Zealand and to ensure there was enough uh, housing mm -hmm. supply there. The other thing that's really I've noticed this week is that the tone and the pace of the um, electioneering has really ramped up this week. So yeah. right from the start, National uh, hammering away at Labor on uh, spending. Labor's been actually pretty effective and sharp going back at National and saying, hey, you're a bunch of extremists. And um, So we're already in a phony war. Yeah, it's pretty full on. How long does the election campaign normally? I mean, is it is, has this been the case under under proportional representation that the election campaign starts six months ahead? Yeah, and it's increasingly front loaded election campaigning now because mm -hmm. there's a good two or three weeks of early voting. So the issue here is, you know, often you would have planned your campaigning to have all your good stuff at the end, you know, all your big hits, all of your your um, takedowns. But there's no point in taking someone down three days out from the election when 30% mm. of the voters have already come in. So, And and the increase in the uh, early vote in the last election was so big. and Just um, because of convenience. I think what happened was COVID uh, encouraged people to, you know, obviously you don't want um, a thousand people turning up at the, the one polling booth in two hours and giving each other COVID. That um, encouraged people to do it early. But I think uh, I just think it's more convenient for people's lifestyles. You want mm. flexibility. You don't want to have to, you know, be in a certain place at a certain time on a Saturday. And you certainly also don't want to put any any further obstacles in mm. in the way of people voting. I mean, yeah. I don't know whether you saw Bernard that the UK introduced, you know, without any uh, evidence, a thing very similar to some of the things that the Americans are trying to do about having to require ID before you vote. 
and it's you know it's had a huge effect on the local elections in the UK. So I think we need to be extremely careful about keeping New Zealand kind of open in that regard. Oh, there he is, Robert. How are you? Hello. Sorry. God, you handsome devil. Fantastic to see you. And you're out and about on a bit of a holiday before the last uh, rush of exams. Is that right? Yes. Yes, that's right. Uh, my family and I have been here since last night. So yeah, yeah, having a few days in Lake Carl, we're one of our favourite spots. So wonderful. Yeah. Now, uh, Robert, it's been a busy old week in Ukraine and in Moscow. It was really busy. Pretty sh- busy is a very busy, busy is a very weird thing to say, Bernard. <laughs> when when you know Kiev's had bloody Eskandar missiles fired at it, you know, overnight, and yeah, busy. You know, the the suburb around where where Vladimir Putin's been has been quite busy with busy. <laughs> drones flying into the people's windows. Well, there's a lot of buzzing, buzzing busyness. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so, Robert, what did you think of these uh, drone attacks in Moscow? And you're saying, Peter, there's been some fresh, fresh ones on Kiev just in the last couple of hours. Well, well the Russians, yeah, not, but yeah, but there's mm. you know the Russians have been doing this for weeks now. Oh yeah, and and it's quite, you know, it's it's pretty brutal. It is. You know, it's been going on since Victory Day. Yeah, and it, it, Peter's absolutely right. About 20 drone attacks by uh, Russia on Kiev uh, during the month of May. And now we're in June and they're continuing. And the, the attempt by Putin apparently is an attempt by the regime to undermine uh, domestic support for Zelensky's uh, approach to the war. Mm. I think it's backfiring. Um, it doesn't seem to be greatly diminishing Ukrainian resilience. And of course, the Ukrainians who are preparing their own counteroffensive, I actually think it's actually began. Um, they've been taking shaping operations, as military analysts like to call it. And that includes um, drone attacks on Moscow itself, including some of the wealthiest areas where yeah. Mr. Putin's entourage live. Yeah, uh, The idea they can sit back in comfort and reign terror on Ukraine and not pay any price, those days are over. But it is quite entertaining for them to have a bit of a wake-up call, isn't it? It is. And, I, I you know, um, it's not just drone attacks on Moscow. We we were talking a few weeks ago about those, those mysterious drones that appeared just over the Kremlin. Mm. But these drone attacks now seem to be, according to Telegram, there were 25 in the uh, Ukrainian drones. Yeah. Uh, well, we're not sure they're Ukrainian. The Ukrainians, of course, deny all knowledge of this, which is really good because it, you know. That, I mean, I, I'm still, I still wonder whether those ones that we talked talked about at the very beginning of mm. May, um, which I talked about today in my spin-off thing, or yesterday in my spin-off thing, you know, they were we they were more or less sort of hobbyist DJI drones, whereas these ones had, you know, were much more interesting kind of and and more dangerous fixed wing, mm. small fixed wing ones which have a range apparently of up to 700 kilometers. Yes. And, uh, of course, when you join that together with the relentless nightly attacks that are going on within Russia Mm. in various locations, I think the Russians are beginning to get a different picture of the war. and It's certainly coming home to them. It's very interesting, Robert. I, I, I was really struck. There was a piece I read this week which talked about, you know, the, the people who attacked the, uh, supposed Russian, um, partisans who attacked uh, Belgorod and the villages just south of Bel- between Belgorod and the Ukraine uh, border were apparently driving Humvees um, supplied to the Ukrainian army by the United States. You know, and this is this is going to cause some some issues, as we say, isn't it? I don't think so. I think both the Brit- I, I like the British explanation, which was 
the, the British were, uh, a government minister was asked about this, whether they were angry with the Ukrainians taking the, the battle into Russia. And he said, well, look, the Russians have been attacking Ukraine from Russia, and yet they expect no retaliation to come their way. He said, that's not how war works. The government minister said in Britain, they're happy to support Ukraine's efforts to repel Russian aggression, it, wherever it comes from, whether in Russia. But there's going to be a problem, though, isn't there, Robert? When I mean, I, 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 going to the sort of geopolitical thing, which is your true skill, you know, it's very interesting to me that Zelensky was in Moldova this week talking mm. about it really is important that the EU uh, and, and NATO accelerate membership talks for both Ukraine and Moldova mm. and offer some security guarantees to Moldova, which, as we know, is you know, right next to um, Odessa, uh, you know, the Russians have fired across it. It's a, it's a very risky place to be. And you've also got the, you know, the constant aggression from or the constant uh, sore, running sore of the Transdanester Republic in Moldova. I wondered whether Zelensky was essentially indicating that a little bit of nerves about, about the solidity of the Western alliance. Maybe, but you could interpret it in another way. Zelensky also said when he was in Moldova that it would be best for the Russian troops to leave Moldova mm -hmm. or the Transnistria region because that's their best way of surviving, which implied that the Ukrainian counteroffensive uh, may not be just confined to displacing uh, Russian occupation of Ukraine. I think the Ukrainians are taking considerable comfort from the divisions which are clearly opening up in Moscow. Prigozhin's expletive-deleted mm. tirades uh, are causing some enormous irritation within the Russian government. He may think he's untouchable because Wagner played a key role in taking Bakhmut, although, mm. as we have we discussed many times before, at great cost to yeah. human lives. But it, there are signs also, uh, a character called Igor Gherkin, who was involved in the annexation of Crimea, claims credit for spearheading it. Mm -hmm. He was one of the little green men. He was the leader of the little green men, in fact. Yeah. Yeah. He's been extremely critical also of Putin's leadership. And um, yeah, I mean, it, it, I think there's evidence that Putin, well, it's not evidence. I, I would think if I was in Putin's shoes, I'd be quite nervous about when this counteroffensive unfolds. And it probably will unfold, it's unfolding at the moment, but it will probably gather momentum in June. Is there a worry, though, for the Ukrainians that, um, you know, they, they do their thing through this summer, uh, but they really have to get things done reasonably quickly. Otherwise, there is a risk that, A, they lose um, support through Europe, but B, mm. uh, as we were talking about with Peter early on, you know, can you imagine a President Trump? He's not going to be sending stuff to Ukraine. Well, no, he'll solve it in 24 hours, he said. I, look, I, I think that's a good point, Bernard, and I think the Ukrainians are acutely aware of this. Uh, and I think the Biden administration, by the way, I know foreign policy is not seen as a, a vote winner in the United States, but if Ukraine succeeds, and I do not think this is a fantasy, if mm -hmm. Ukraine succeeds in defeating Putin by October, Mr. Biden will be very happy with that because that would set him up nicely for next year, saying he kept his nerve. And unlike Mr. Trump, who did nothing, despite the fact he was in power for four years after Putin uh, took uh, Crimea, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't say it was a huge deal, but uh, it, it's, you know, I think both Biden and Zelensky are keen to get on with the job. And from Biden's point of view, if the counteroffensive 
can be completed successfully before the end of the year, that would make that would put him in a strong domestic political mm. position uh, as having come to the aid of a democracy which Mr. Putin, uh, which Mr. Trump has never shown much concern about. In fact, his friend has been sitting in the Kremlin. And uh, I think this uh, Biden could use that to good political effect in the election. But Bernard's quite right. There's, there's, you know, the stakes are quite high here. Yeah, Robert, I much prefer it when you say that I'm quite right than Bernard's quite right. But, um, <laughs> how, how big does the... Does Sometimes the... it's preferable when you sleep in, but it's yeah, all right. <laughs> Jesus, Bernard, thanks very much. <laughs> I, I'm actually really worried about your backdrop. There's a, that some sort of German eagle behind, sort of double-headed oh, eagle. Car. Of course it's a kaka. Is it a kaka imprinted on some sort of kaipoi blanket? It's a cushion cover. Robert, um, how big does the Ukrainian response have to be? The Ukrainian, you know, what, what, does, what does victory look like? I, I think victory from the Ukrainian's point of view is the ejection of all Russian troops from occupied territories. Uh, Mr. Zelensky in the last 24 hours has said there'll be no negotiation with Russia until they leave the illegally occupied parts of Ukraine, mm. which include the Crimea. And by the way, if they do cut off Crimea and annex Crimea, I think it, I think Mr. Putin will be looking for a bolt hole somewhere. You mean claim it back, not annex? Right. Yeah. yeah, annex. If he annex, if they annex uh, Crimea, or take back, I should say, Crimea, I think it's very bad news for Mr. Putin. But look, it, you know, we, as we all know, war is an unpredictable. Uh, unpredictable business, and uh, I just think the Ukrainians have momentum. They they have shown themselves to be military competent. They are engaged in some sophisticated psychological operations at the moment using these drones, uh, and of course, they're, at the same time, they're taking a lot of punishment themselves, as you pointed out, Peter. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, that's one of the big contests between Russia and Ukraine. But the other big contest on the geopolitical uh, stage is between the United States and China. And we're very lucky and uh, pleased to welcome in Sam Sashtiva from Wellington. Sam, lovely to see you. Lovely to be here. Thanks for having me, Bernard and uh, Peter. You're a noted author now, which which, you know, that, that, that elevates your position even beyond what it was before. You know, you, you, you've got a considered view. Oh, well, that, that's, that's all I'm aimed for in life. Yeah, and I absolutely love your um, backdrop with the book, The China Tightrope. There's a link in the um, email that's gone out, and I'll include it in the um, podcast uh, email that goes out tomorrow. Sam, um, can you talk us through, you know, what was your thinking behind writing the book? How did you go about it? And uh, what surprised you in the process of writing it? Yeah, so I first started working on this uh, in late 2021. And, you know, I think for a few years now, there's been a real sense that we're at at an inflection point in the relationship that that things are changing dramatically. As I sort of noted in the introduction, we had the 50th anniversary of the, of uh, diplomatic relations last year, and you look at the, the hoopla or lack thereof, and compare it with the 40th anniversary in 2013, and you just get a sense of how much more fraught these things are. I was at a meeting yesterday, and someone was saying, you know, the list of sensitive areas, the areas where we have to treat carefully, where we disagree with China, is just is growing, and it's only growing by the day. It's, it's ratcheting up one way. So. Um, this is basically a sort of half stock take, uh, uh, trying to look at you know how we've got to where we are with China, the FTA before that, um, the sort of poll tax going way back in the sort of settlement of early Chinese migrants, and also trying to look ahead and say what are some of the big issues that we're going to 
has to deal with um, in the years to come around decoupling, around trade diversification, and so on. Uh, in terms of surprises, I think, I don't know how surprising this was, but the, the fact that so many people are still so wary of talking about China, even in some cases anonymously, you know, you had members of the business community who initially said, yeah, look, we're happy to have a chat to you, and, and then ended up um, sort of walking away, politicians, quite senior politicians, diplomats, and so on. So do, do you mean, Sam, that they just don't want, they just don't want to touch it? Yeah, yeah. I think they calculate that the, the, any benefit of, of having an open anonymous discussion is outweighed by the risks of saying something wrong and leading to some sort of retaliation um, from China or, or elsewhere. So may I ask, Sam, one of the things that I've written in the in various pieces in North and South over the past couple of months is uh, that it seems to me that certainly Jacinda Ardern and especially Nanaya Mahuta have actually been quite effective in being quite subtle about the way they've treated China, that they've understood the sensitivity of this and, and handled it really remarkably well, not being bellicose but being quite uh, subtle, though not not necessarily transparent with the New Zealand public about what they're doing or the media. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, no, I I would agree with that entirely, Peter. I think, you know, for all that there's been brickbacks thrown our way from Australia and the UK and other um, sort of parts of the globe, there's this perennial line that it's four and a half eyes or four eyes and we're on the cusp of being kicked out. I think actually our approach on the whole has been been a really welcome one. It's sort of Playing, playing in both ways a little bit, saying, look, we have a strong uh, security relationship with the United States, we have a strong cultural relationship, but we are going to keep working with China. And this line about an independent foreign policy, sometimes it's misinterpreted and it's not necessarily always helpful, but actually it's, it's broadly the right one. And you look at what's happened in Australia with the change of um, government, Anthony Albanese and Penny Wong coming in, and actually I think the approach they've taken on China in tone is, is much more closely aligned to what we've seen in, in New Zealand in the last few years. Yeah. And Robert, what do you what Robert, what do you think about this this approach that you know, the subtlety approach that I mean Sam's Sam's I think uh, Sam, are you, are you do you argue in the book that this is the right approach to be, you know, that you've got to stay engaged with China? Yeah, yes, yes, absolutely. And I, I think I made the point in sort of in the conclusion or the final chapter is that, you know, the, the problems, some of the global problems we're dealing with, climate change and so on, they are far too big uh, to shut out a, a country with a population mm. of 1.4 billion people. And in general, yeah. you can't you can't shut it out. So, yes, I think engagement is the way to go. We need to be willing to speak out when we have concerns about human rights and other areas mm. of China's policy. But, yeah, we can't ignore them or try and, Relegate them to the fringes of the world stage, and Robert. So is is Sam being is Sam being naive in that? No, I, I first of all congratulations, Sam, on your publication. I really look forward to reading it. I think it's a a wonderful development because it is much needed. We needed something a book length uh, treatment of New Zealand's relationship with China, um, but uh, I actually think it's engagement without illusions. Uh, that is to say that in a sense, compared with their predecessors. Um, Jacinda Ardern and now um, Chris Hipkins and Foreign Minister Nanaya Mahuta, they have been quite critical on occasions uh, with the Chinese. Um, some of that we understand has been conducted in private. But at the same time, they haven't necessarily bought into the hyped up threat view of China. 
That is to say, they refuse to pigeon, in Jacinda Ardern's words, they've re- the, 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 the Labour government has refused to pigeonhole China and Russia together. Mm. And the thing is, I, I think there's something I think is important about this nuanced position is that A, it doesn't exaggerate the Chinese threat. China has vulnerabilities. And um, that uh, what are the vulnerabilities? Um, China still remains heavily dependent for its economic prosperity on through three large markets, which is the United States, EU, and Japan, despite the Belt and Road mm-hmm. Initiative. And secondly, I think it's also shrewd, because while Xi Jinping uh, is the paramount leader in China, and it's difficult to read the tea leaves, so to speak, when you're dealing with an authoritarian regime, there is evidence that there is differences of view in the Central Committee of the ruling uh, uh, Communist Party. So in a sense, I think New Zealand's approach always keeps the possibility of dialogue alive, and in a sense, doesn't play into the hands of the hardliners when the Chinese leadership. And, uh, you know, that that may be one of the dangers of AUKUS, by the way, that mm. it confirms what she has always said about the United States and, by implication, Australia and the UK. Sam, uh, I'm I'm curious um, to see what you think of the both sides of the political sphere in New Zealand and, you know, any long-term diplomatic relationship. It's been one of those areas where there hasn't been too much daylight between the main parties on big foreign affairs issues. But in this case, at National, uh, uh, unlike some of its conservative um, counterparts in Australia and the US and the UK, have been much more, for the want of a better word, pro-China than um, their, their compatriots what, what's your view on on uh, how the you know potential government within four or five months uh, might change the relationship or take a different view? Yeah, I mean you, you've nailed it in one thing, and it is quite striking. Right, you look at conservative uh, parties in, in other parts of the West very strongly anti-China and uh, hawkish, if we if that's the right word, and and that's the opposite case here. So I think part of that is a is the legacy of the two thousand and eight FTA. You know. They didn't sign that deal, the national government, but they certainly benefited from it. So I think if you look at some of what Sir John Key has said very publicly about China, he's pretty much at the fringe, and I think he acknowledges that. But that, I think there's probably a view within the National Party um, that's the same. So, look, I, I think maybe we see a slightly more um, welcoming approach to China, but I, I wouldn't want to take that too far. I get the sense that for all that um, Jerry Brownlee and to an extent Christopher Luxon might say, might have warm words. I think you get into office, you get those briefings from MFAT officials, defence officials, intelligence officials, and there are sort of underlying characteristics there in the relationship and areas of concern that are not going to go away. So we, yeah, it's, it's possible that we might see a slight improvement. What what did you? How did you gauge, or what did you gauge to be the level of New Zealand's diplomatic competence at the moment? Oh, that is a that is a great question. I think. I mean, now that you've finished it, you don't need to talk to them anymore. You might as well tell me. <laughs> I think, I think his day job might uh, might dictate that. But anyway, yes, yes. Well, no, a little bit more freedom. Geniuses, they're all bloody geniuses. If you were going to be charitable, you would call it strategic ambiguity. I think mm-hmm. less charitably, you could say it's a little bit of a mess. And I, I think part of that is. Change from Jacinda Ardern to Chris Hipkins, as you said, Peter, Jacinda, very adept 
in terms of foreign policy and, and you know, very across, I think, the New Zealand messaging. And, you know, it wasn't that way for her at the start, um, but she was very, very adept by the end. And I don't think Chris Hipkins has that, that background, all that inflammation to spend a lot of time on it in an election. But are there enough, are there enough people in MFAT who were really excellent at their job? Oh. About China, I mean. Yeah. Look, I think there are very good China people in there, but then there are there are still probably conflicting narratives. You get the, the sort of fatigue and MFAT, the very trade-focused people who do mm. see it primarily in economic terms, and you see, you know, on the defence side, I know we're talking about MFAT, but I think the defence MFAT dynamic is interesting in itself. You look at some of what Andrew yeah. Little's been saying recently mm. around Orcus and China. So, yeah, I, I think it's funny you should say that, because I, I was wondering the other the other night idly whether we need to go back to having a Ministry of Foreign Affairs, including potentially a Ministry of Foreign Affairs where the Prime Minister is, in fact, the Minister of Foreign Affairs, which we had effectively under Norman Kirk, which apparently was a bit of a golden age. Yeah, that's an interesting idea. I, I'll confess I don't know a huge amount about the, the structure back then, but I think the degree to which MFAT has become a, a trade ministry is, is pretty obvious, and that's, they're having to adjust to that, I think. Mm. But it does sometimes feel still that we're too heavily oriented towards seeing uh, foreign policy through a trade lens. And, you know, if you look at India, for example, that's yeah, a, a, an issue. Just finally, Sam, congratulations, by the way, on the book. It's fantastic to see and very well deserved the uh, excellent reception it's getting. Uh, just one final thing, though. Um, in reporting the book and your general reporting, you will have spoken to many people uh, you know, off the record in the um, foreign affairs, diplomatic communities, maybe even the security communities um, who obviously didn't want to go on the record. What's your sense of what they really, really think about mm. China, you know, when they've had three or four beers or six coffees you know <laughs> what do they what do they really think yeah look i think there is real concern about the trajectory we're heading towards and the sense that this is this is not going to be a problem that diminishes that we're going to have these frictions this need to sort of walk our tightrope pretty carefully and, and uncertainty so yeah i don't i don't think there's a lot of uh, optimists around to be honest so it's, it's you know how bad things get over no, but yeah, I think people are worried and worried about you know what it means for New Zealand as a, a small country that relies so heavily on these international organisations staying together and holding. And do you sense that the trading community really are ready? If, for example, there is some rupture, some conflict, you know, real drama in Taiwan, and you see some sort of mass pullback in trade, like we saw it overnight with with Russia. Is New Zealand ready to handle that? No. In, in a word, no. I think, you know, for all the talk of diversification and ministers have been going about this for years, if not decades, um, I don't think we're seeing that from businesses. And their argument as well, if we've got Chinese consumers who are going to pay a 400% premium for our product, why should we try and move it elsewhere mm. um, when we've got to deal with the cost of going into new markets? So I don't think we've seen that diversification. I think there's still a, a, a yeah. Um, but Sam, we just the 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 the, the agreement with um, the UK came into effect this week. That's that's surely going to radicalise, you know, transform New Zealand's trade balance. Our problems are solved. Yes. Yeah, it's, you know, Brexit yes. is it's it's a it's a huge asset for for the for New Zealand. 
rule Britannia. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean so that that will help. That will help, but it is it's you know leading a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. So I think they're going to have to. NZTA, other government officials are really going to have to push this. But ultimately, if there is that complacency from businesses, there's not much we can do about it. Sam, thank you very much. I'll let you get back to your uh, evening uh, there. Uh, lovely to see you again. I thank look you. forward to having a good, quiet read of the book on my um, overseas holiday. And I hope you um, also get a bit of a rest at some point as well before the election, because that'll be very yes, quiet. Yes, yes. Thank you. And I should say very briefly as well that uh, this would probably not have been possible producing this book without our very long conversations in the Museum Gallery <laughs> office about China and China's relationship with New Zealand while you were, were still working there. So, um, yeah, I'd probably owe a huge tip to you for this. Thank oh, you. That's very generous of you, Sam. Don't, don't, you know, his <laughs> head's big enough already. That's... No, I, I, okay. uh, I, I thank you for that. And I also am proud, actually, uh, that um, one of the things I uh, was involved in was setting up the newsroom bureau in the parliamentary press gallery and also um, making sure that um, we covered foreign affairs and you've done an amazing job with newsroom um, uh, pushing that and I think um, you've been one of the main ways in which this debate about China has um, progressed in New Zealand. Yeah, it's so important because there doesn't seem to be, Sam, and maybe Robert too, there doesn't seem to be the level of I, I know your uh, student Jeffrey Miller um, Robert is doing some good work in this area, but there doesn't seem to be the the, the level of scrutiny or transparency that are coming the other way from the foreign ministry and so on about some of these issues. I found it very difficult to. I mean, Sam's there; he can walk across to whatever ghastly um, real ale places on the terrace and talk to them. But you know what. Uh, there doesn't seem to be this kind of um, connection between Wellington-based journalism and uh, government departments anymore, particularly the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Is that is that true, Sam? And Robert, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll talk very briefly. I'm sure Robert's got a lot of um, good insights into this. I think you know, foreign policy, if we look at it specifically, was still so shallow, I think, in terms of media coverage, but also think tanks. I think there are academics who do great work, like Robert and others. I know I talk a lot to the people at Victoria University, but actually we've seen, you know, the last couple of weeks, they're looking at making pretty significant cuts, and a lot of those cuts mm-hmm. are in languages on the humanities, and that's really concerning. So, you know, I think there's a gap in that space. Uh, yeah, in terms of that dialogue between journalists and and government officials, uh, the walls have gone up, and that's been a trend over the last decade or two decades. So um, it is a problem. I don't think you get that transparency and that ability to talk on on background with with officials. The rare exception being overseas trips with the prime minister, where sometimes they will be quite engaging, and it's actually very useful. And I don't know why they don't do it more yeah. often because no, they exactly. should see the benefit from that. Robert, what do you, what do you think? Because I, I was quite flabbergasted that that Mahusha could go to Beijing with without any reporters with her. Yeah, well, I think that's regrettable, and I agree with what Sam said. Uh, there's been an interesting trend, slightly the other way though, that governments in recent years, including MFAT and uh, Ministry of Defence, have enga- engaged in outreach activities to the universities. And one of the interesting things, and I'm sure Sam is following this as I am. There's quite an interesting debate around AUKUS with some academics, uh, such as my colleague, Associate Professor Nicholas Koo, uh, Dr. Rubin Steff at Waikato University, coming out very strongly for membership of AUKUS 
and the skeptics like myself are not quite so convinced. So uh, what, the reason I mention that um, is, is that I, it is regrettable that people like Sam, who's done a great job, I believe, I, I, I read a lot of your stuff, Sam, in, in Newsroom, I think it's wonderful. I think we're taking foreign affairs more seriously uh, thanks to people like Sam. And it's very important because I think New Zealand sometimes talks about itself as, as if it's irrelevance, it's just mm. a small state. But other countries don't see us that way. And, uh, you know, in a sense, um, it's very important that we do have informed debates domestically and people like Sam are key parts of that because without the media coverage, you know, how can we have a debate? Mm, yeah. Robert and Sam, thank you so much for being on the show. Lovely to yeah. uh, have you. Um, it's time now to um, zoom back in uh, to Wellington, but this time not Wellington in an MFAT or parliamentary sense, but Wellington local government and an area that I think is actually increasingly important, what's actually happening on the ground with our councils, with our house builders, with our road builders in dealing with uh, not just our housing shortages, but our climate issues. And Tamatha Paul is councillor at the Wellington City Council. Tamatha, kia ora and welcome into the Hoon. It's lovely to see you. Kia ora, Bernard. How's it going? Great. Now, I am fascinated with the Lambton Key Cycleway. Thorndon Key? Sorry, the Thorndon Key. We should one have one on, on Lambton Key as well. And we will. Yeah. The Thorndon Key Cycleway. Uh, for those of you who aren't in Wellington, it's it's one of those sort of main commuter routes in from the likes of Johnsonville, Kandala, and the Hutt into Wellington for those people who are driving. And, and if we're going to move to um, change our modes, we need a lot more cycleways there. And two years ago, the council voted to um, put in a cycleway. And um, to do that, it needed to take out 144 angled car parks and and replace them with parallel parks. Can you explain for us why um, two years on, there's, there's still not much going on there? So I think it comes back to the fact that councils are controlled by the the frameworks that are put in place by government. and. Minister Wood, uh, Woods has been really good at identifying those barriers because, you know, for example, every time we take out one single car park or try to make one single change to one single car park, we have to go through this really long process, um, traffic resolution process, and there are so many opportunities throughout that process for people to really derail it. And it really stops us from taking a um, holistic approach to decarbonizing the transport system because that's kind of the number one priority at least for me and then number two but just as important as is making sure that we have a safe transport system and that people can and and that's kind of the priority for thorn and key is making it safer but this traffic resolution process is archaic i mean it just allows for the interests of the few to overwhelm the interests in the public good of the many and so that's why we uh um you know, yet to see changes on, on Thorndon Key. So just the background for our um, listeners elsewhere and for those people who haven't been keeping up with the, the latest news on the Thorndon Key drama, announced in uh, mid-2021 from the council, we're going to go ahead and do this. And then the Thorndon Key Collective, which is a whole bunch of business owners, shop owners, 
various people along Thorndon Quay who want to keep the angled car parks, um, challenged it in the High Court. It was rejected by the court and have just in the last couple of days decided to take it to the Appeals Court. You know, this is the high, one of the highest courts in the land um, and we're debating uh, a bunch of car parks. It is quite a thing. How are we going to get over this if we're going to actually make progress? Because this system essentially weaponizes the status quo. Um, and just uh, you know, for um, disclosure, you, you're uh, a candidate on the provisional green list for the election um, this year. Is, is that right, Tamatha? Uh, I'm standing for Wellington Central, but I'm not standing for the list. Yeah. Yeah. So how would you? How do you think we should change it centrally? If it's going to be the central government setting the tone and the rules. How do we do it? Well, I think um, this process and this situation that's happened is really um, it's really a um, a result of of um, what is quite prevalent throughout local government, which is that people with a lot of privilege and power are able to disrupt everything. And it's not just in the transport system; it's also in housing and the ability for communities to say, "Well, well, not in my backyard," you know. And so, um, so I think what needs to happen here is um, our transport minister really needs to make it a lot easier for councils to to deliver kind of more um, networks for their for their city, particularly transport networks, because it's really hard to like you can't take the view of what are the kind of discrete um, concerns of particular areas. You kind of have to take this whole network um, approach mm-hmm. because if every you know if we're trying to deliver a citywide cycleway network which only impacts twenty percent of the total of all the roads in Wellington of which we're two-thirds of the way, by the way, which is pretty exciting. Um, But if we were to, you know, if we were to listen to every single person that said, well, not here, you can't do it here, then we'd achieve absolutely nothing. And it's also really frustrating because we won't be able to realise the full impacts and benefits of this cycleway network or of all the other changes we're making to the wider transport system until it's 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 a total network. So that's a really frustrating part about it moving so slowly and about it being so disjointed is that we won't see the full benefits. We won't see more people on bikes. We won't see more women and children on bikes. We won't see greater um, bus efficiency and just the kind of wider benefits to to the network um, until we've got that whole network in place. So I wish that the minister would come in and just say, look, go hard, do what you need to do to um, to deliver the entire network and we're going to remove all of the abilities for people to disrupt that. Tamitha, may I ask, it's Peter here, I'm, I'm Bernard's co-host, may I ask you a, a slightly provocative question on this? Because you, you mentioned net zero and, and the, the carbon element of this. Yeah. My, my sense was bef- before you were just talking about the network that you were prioritising the carbon, uh, you know, New Zealand's you know, carbon requirements and this is part of that. Mm-hmm. Are you prioritising that over, or is there a risk that you're perceived of prioritising that over the sort of, economic and uh, e- economic business health of Wellington? Um, oh, kia ora, Peter. Sorry for not saying um, hello no earlier. Um, uh, no, I don't think so because I think that what we kind of see internationally is that just because there's a cycle way doesn't mean it's going to be terrible for businesses and it doesn't necessarily mean that there will be negative economic impacts. Like it's obviously a really hard time to operate a business and, the, you know, all of the all of those things that that we know, but who's to say that um, having being able to get more people riding and walking through your neighbourhood and um, changing the way that people move about necessarily means that your business will suffer? So yeah, 
Yeah, no, I guess just let me, let me, I guess what I'm asking, Tim, is, is 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 your personal political priority to meet those net zero requirements and to do whatever is required to meet those, or is it to make Wellington a more sophisticated place where you know people can can make these? I I, I totally understand the idea that once you know there is a classic thing with cycleways that if you build them, people will use them. If it's safe, mm-hmm. people will use them. But mm-hmm. it, which is your priority? Is it is it to help New Zealand meet its carbon? requirements or is it to um to provide this network this sounds like a cop-out but it is all of those things and that's why it's such an easy thing to advocate for in my opinion because it has so many co-benefits um from a city council perspective the biggest thing that we can do to reduce our emissions 50 percent of which come from car usage is to um, make the buses more efficient and to get people walking and cycling um but from a safety perspective um it's you know like I couldn't even have a conscience if I had mm-hmm. it, like I've listened for the last few years to children and mothers and and all sorts of people come and talk to us and share their experience of how hostile it is riding a bike in Wellington mm-hmm. and so there's Absolutely. lots of co benefits but also like I've got a planning degree I really want our city to be like an amazing space that people can move about you know freely confidently independently safely. And we're really behind in that in that space. We have such a outdated mode of transport, and just looking around our city, it's it's like it's tired. It's and so there's also that kind of um, aspect that I'm interested in in terms of revitalizing the city, making it a cool place to live, and getting up from scratch all the time. So it's all the co benefits that you know is, is why I support it. Brilliant, Tamitha. Thank you very much, and and you're very welcome to stay on because we're going to introduce into the, the hoon Sarah Templeton, who is a councillor at the Christchurch City Council and who is uh, also having to think a lot about cycleways in various uh, dramas. Sarah, for an, you know, a wider audience right across the country, around the world, we've got um, quite a few people who dial in from wherever, including Peter, who is, in, is calling us from LA at the moment on his way back. Oh, oh the cycleways in LA are absolutely fantastic. Really? You know, I, I rode yeah, I rode on them today and I felt like I was taking my life in my own hands. <laughs> it was it was quite harrowing, but please continue. Sarah, could you tell us what is going on in Christchurch with the Park Terrace Cycleway? Kyora Koto, um great to be invited on. Thank you for that. Um so as you know, post-quake Christchurch uh, has put in plans for a network of major cycle routes and they are partway built now, the sort of two-thirds done. We've seen a huge number uh, increase in the number of people cycling and not only the number of people cycling, but who's cycling. So in our central city now, we have 46% of cyclists are women and that's virtually unheard of across the country. It normally sits under 30%. Um, on some of our major cycleways now, we've got data that shows that 24% of people who were using them had switched from a vehicle for that trip. Um, so it's showing that actual mode shift, not just potential. So we've started putting in uh, a network of other cycleways too. And so little connections here and there where it's really needed. Um, and one of these is along Rolleston Ave and Park Terrace as the museum's being redeveloped. And so what's happened is that we've put in this temporary infrastructure Councillors were given a heads up ahead of time and uh, once it went in, as it was happening, there was a bit of congestion when roadworks happen, but that all happened within a period of two weeks and then it was open. 
So in January, we got a, an email, a memo that gave us a heads up on what was happening and no one sent any feedback in saying that they didn't think it should happen. And it showed the full extent of where that would go. In March, we had a meeting um, with a briefing in public and there, there's a live stream that people can see. Is it just, is it just that, we're, that, that the right is somehow anti-bicycle? Nothing gets people more riled up than cycleways. Yeah. I, that's so true. Yeah. And I know that Wellington's experiencing that now, like we have in Christchurch. Who gets riled up and why? Because I, I, I must admit that a, a brother of mine who I've mentioned before in certain conservative circles gets, <laughs> um, you know, will, will be driving with me somewhere like Manarewa and he'll point out the cycleway and he'll say, you know, Jesus Christ, that costs, you know, a million dollars a million dollars a meter. And, you know, you know, there's nobody on it. You can see there's nobody on it. But, you know, if somebody is stirring these people up. Yeah, I, I, it's interesting. So it tends to be people who, I get, for whatever reason, can't see themselves on a bike. Um, and they tend to be older. They tend to be white. They tend to be male. Um, and they have very strong opinions about the amount of access that they should have in their cars that they have always had and, mm -hmm. and the enormous amount of privilege that that provides. But for so many people, they don't have that. And cycleways, because they cost some money um, and because some people see them as unnecessary, have become a political hot potato. And everywhere they go in, around the world, they are controversial. Can I just add, it also doesn't help when you don't have a functioning public transport system. Like, I think that is the <laughs> yes. big thing too. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, we know that we need to change how we travel. Um, we know, and it's not just the climate change. So climate change is my thing. I hold the climate change portfolio. But we know that it's also about safety. So this particular one, Park Terrace, um, was three lanes of traffic along there. It's still three lanes for the bit where it's really needed, where there are actually cars all the time um, near Beely Ave. But this is an area where school kids were crossing to go to school. And now what we've done is we've made it so they only have to cross two lanes of traffic with a pedestrian refuge in the middle. Mm. And that's through putting in temporary infrastructure. So for many years, our councillors have said to us, some of them have said, they're too expensive. We want cheap ones. We want trial ones. Use plastic bollards. And yeah. that's the way we'll go. And now we've put one in and they're saying, <laughs> we don't like it. Pull it out. Yeah. So this is this is why I'm fascinated with the Park Terrace um, cycleway, Sarah, is that this was done quite quickly, a couple of weeks, yeah. drilled in the plastic bollards. It's safer, clearly safer, and obviously people are yeah. using it. And it strikes me that one of the problems that we've seen, not just here, but all around the world with cycleways is this view that, well, we're going to have to build an entire new structure. We're going to have to keep the the roads there for the cars, they can't lose a single lane and we're going to have to build something new and that's going to make it expensive. Whereas it seems obvious to me, um, you simply remove the car parks and or one of the lanes, put in one of these drilled in bollards and get cracking. Because one of the core problems I think with our need for mode shift is it has to be fast and it has to be cheap and not all about concrete and steel. You know, it has to be like, really get on with it because 2030 is too late and absolutely I, I, and seeing this this success of a very quick move and then the backlash and as you point out um the councillors should have read all their emails <laughs> apart from anything else how is this going to play out because what we have now is the the um 
the old white men on the council, let's, that's my views, are, are saying, no, we have to rip out those bollards and put it back in there for the cars. And what we're going to do is we're going to have a vote next week. And there's going to be a quick survey in which we ask people, how bad is the cycle lane from one to five? Is it really bad? Incredibly bad? Going to end the world? You know, it's all a big UN plot. I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> I, I have heard that. Um, I will say, actually, the survey is a good survey. Um, And so the survey asks, if you use Park Terrace and how do you use it? Do you use it as a driver, a passenger, a pedestrian, a cyclist, that kind or or other? And then asks whether the current changes have made your journey the same, better, worse, that kind of thing. And so I think that's quite useful. The problem is, of course, the survey closes on the 11th of June because it was put in a while ago. Mm -hmm. And the vote on whether we keep it or not is on the 7th of June. Ah, Oh, that makes perfect sense. (laughs) I think we need to hear from the public. But actually, we've got another missing step in that our community board is supposed to have the delegated responsibility to get the public feedback and give us a recommendation. And what this notice of motion does is take away the ability for the community board to make a recommendation to us. And the community board would really like to be able to do that. Just finally, um, and maybe for both of you, um, how do we get through this logjam where cycleways have turned into some sort of cultural war-y, you know, standoff, um, shout and, and throw ep- episode, when actually what, what we need is people to calm down a bit and work out, you know, what are the basic benefits and costs here? And if you do a, a very simple and not controversial analysis, you reduce the country's carbon emission liabilities, you improve the pe- the health of people, you have fewer people um, getting knocked off their bikes or pedestrians getting knocked off because the um, cars are slower. It's a hell of a lot cheaper to ride a bike than it is to drive a double cab ute. You, they're cheaper to buy. The The thing is, all of that is true. And there is so much data everywhere that shows us the benefits of people biking more and the benefits of putting safety improvements in. The problem is, facts don't change minds. Mm. And that is a universal story. And there's a whole pile of research on that now. And actually, you need to find other ways of connecting with people. So through shared values, you know, finding actually, what do we value? We value the ability for kids to have independence. And we value their ability to go to school by themselves once they reach sort of eight or nine. But that means that we need safe infrastructure for them to Mm. get there. So we've been doing our slow speed neighbourhood stuff at the moment as well, focused around schools. And all of that feeds in together. So it's less about the facts. We know the data. We can keep throwing it at people. But it's about connecting with people, sharing, um, finding values, sharing stories. Tamatha, uh, just a final question for you. You know, how, how do you win the hearts and minds of the Thorndon Key Collective and their lawyers uh, ahead of the appeals court <laughs> case? Well, I don't know, and I probably shouldn't comment because I don't want to jeopardise um, anything. Oh, the court but, case. But, yeah. but I, I think just that I totally agree with what um, Sarah was saying, and I think that a big priority too has to be getting a, having a good functioning public transport system because I think it really frustrates people when their bus doesn't show up Absolutely. and then they're seeing um well it gets cancelled they're waiting in the rain and then they see a cycleway being built you know like it just that would be extremely incredibly frustrating but I think trying to show people that you know building cycleways taking out parking allows more space on the road makes the buses even more efficient and so I think we've just got to be committed to to really um improving both of those things at the same time. Yeah, changing changing mode must mean that there's got to be multiple modes. Absolutely. Mm. 
Tamitha uh, Paul and Sarah Templeton uh, from the Wellington and Christchurch City Councils, um, respectively, as councillors. Uh, thank you so much for coming on The Hoon. It's lovely to see you and, and for taking thank the time you. on a Friday evening. Thanks, guys. Have a good weekend. Thank you very much. And it's, it's time now for Peter and I to wind up with a skateboarding dog. Well, Bernard, I hope you've got one because I've been looking looking for one and I haven't really found oh. a good skateboarding dog. I'm actually a bit depressed about it, actually. Oh, right. no, I've got some good ones for you. I've been saving them up. Um, Excellent. All right, you, got, you, you, you can do the skateboarding dog yeah. this week. Okay, so Yevgeny Prigozhin, Putin's chef, had a map behind him in a photo that turned up online and a very busy staff reporter, James Halpin, had a closer look at the map and realised it had um, various pins in the map of where Wagner Group had, um, you know, mercenaries mm-hmm. fighting, mm. including one pin in the map on the Chatham Islands. Well, they're, they're, I mean, they're famous. Are they down there harvesting power? They must be. So uh, James <laughs> contacted uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin and asked the question, you know, are you about to invade the Chathams or have you, you got plans for some sort of military action there? And he said, uh, we will not share this information. Everything has its own time. Mm-hmm. Of course, that's a bit of a threat, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I think we'd better send an, an Orion or a Poseidon out over there to make sure that there isn't a Russian submarine out there. Or maybe the seven, the single 757 we have, which is the thing that the PM takes the journalists yeah, well, to in China. I don't think we can do that. I, don't think, no. I, don't, I think that's, again, very unfair, Bernard. You know, <laughs> the 757 is an executive transport vehicle or a troop transport vehicle. It is not there for patrol, you know? And just pivoting back from global affairs to council affairs, for those who've been following the whole Wayne Brown dramas this week, where he locked some reporters out and... Even I saw that this week and I just thought, <laughs> Jesus Christ, what a dickhead. <laughs> Although he is, he should be the first... When I when I finally launch OK Boomer, he should be my first interview guest after Chloe um, Swarbrick. Okay. Well, here's some fun. So yesterday he tried to convince everyone to that the Auckland airport shares owned by the council need to be sold. Um, there was no choice, he said, and he accused various councillors who were opposed to it uh, of being financially illiterate. Well, for fun today, he decided to, to forward on a collection of emails that he'd been sent by his supporters, and he forwarded it on to all his fellow councillors. And of course, in the council... Every councillor has one vote and the mayor only has one vote. So every vote, the mayor has to, you know, gather a coalition of councillors in favour of the things that the mayor wants. So he sort of has to be nice to them, has to try and convince them. So what he did was he got all together all these emails and forwarded it to every councillor, including a bunch of emails that said this, including this one that said, Hi, Mayor Brown. Can I ask which of the dipshits councillors are against the sale of the airport? Shame you can't kick their ass without spelling there correctly, there as, as that's where their brains are. And there are a bunch of other comments as well along the lines. And so this is Wayne Brown forwarding them on to councillors, including yeah. a couple of bits of celebratory uh, comments to um, Wayne Brown. The next round of champagne and smoked salmon is on me, said Roger. Keep doing what you're doing. Auckland needs you now more than ever <laughs> to sell these shares. Just extraordinary. We ne- we thought we wouldn't be infected by the whole Trumpy, you know, madness, but we've got our own version of. We've got our own dickhead. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh, I can't wait to get back on Monday and just you know <laughs> o- open up the Herald and see how things are going uh, with Wayne. Yeah. Now, welcome back to the calm and relaxed old uh, town, Peter. Jesus, you've made it, made it sound like I'm going to be living through the next five months of an election campaign, which is 
Oh, you yeah. Know, there'll be sausage rolls and all sorts of bollocks. P- Peter, have a safe trip. We'll see, see you, you later. Um, this week. Right, thank and you thank you very much to everyone for listening to The Hoon. I've been Bernard Hickey. You've also been listening to co-host Peter Bale. See, see you. you all next week. Possibly. See you shortly. Bye. Cheers. Bye-bye.